0: Last week, and if you missed the message, you can always pull it up online, hemixstreetchurch.com, and uh, go to our sermons tab, watch one of the videos, watch the video, listen to it if you like on the podcast. We talked a bit about how, unlike any other faith system in the world, the Christian faith hinges on the identity of a single person, a single individual, the man we know of as Jesus. And that means that when it comes to Christianity, the real question is are the Gospels, are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and or John, reliable accounts of actual events regarding Jesus' life that are worthy of basing our faith upon. Because if any one of the Gospels, let alone all of the Gospels, but if any one or all the Gospels are reliable accounts of actual events, it means that what Jesus said about himself is true, and what Jesus said that he did really happened. And if what these Gospels say is true, we should all pay attention. This is important. So let's pray, and then I'll tell you what we've got on tap today. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together here this morning. Thank you for giving us yet another opportunity to come together as your ecclesia, as your community, to fellowship, to say hello to friends and catch up on the week, and then to sit down and... Listen to your word so that we can understand it better and you better. And we can draw closer to you. So God, we ask that you be with us today during our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So last week we saw how the Gospel of Luke began. We're we're in the Gospel of Luke during this series that will lead us into Easter. And we saw that, that Luke began by telling us exactly what he was doing, exactly what his agenda was. His agenda was to document a life of a first-century day laborer from Galilee who started a movement that was considered at the time a cult and who was crucified by Rome and who was rejected by his own people. So we ask ourselves the question, why? Why would Luke, a doctor, a rational, reasonable, studied man, an educated, sophisticated person, why would Luke waste his time if Jesus wasn't who he said he was? Well, as we saw last week, Luke wasn't the only person who found it imperative, who found it really important to tell the story of Jesus. Remember what we saw? Luke told us many, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things we've been, that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So Luke took his time and, verse 3, carefully investigated from the beginning, everything from the beginning. So Luke said, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Now, as we discussed last week, Theophilus was probably a first century Christian who'd heard the stories and the claims of Jesus and became a Jesus follower and needed somebody to put this story together so that it could be best understood and then passed along to the next generation. A friend introduced me to a, to a Bible scholar that I listened to this week, and I learned that, that his theory, which was really interesting, I'd never heard it before, his theory was that Theophilus was the attorney who was defending Paul in front of the tribunal in Rome, And Luke's detailed account was written for him so that he would understand Paul's case and he could use it to defend Paul at trial. Very interesting theory. I haven't looked into it further, but boy, I thought that was pretty cool. In any case, Luke thoroughly investigated eyewitness accounts. Luke was friends with the key players in the story of the life of Jesus. He was friends with John and and James, Jesus's younger brother. He was friends with Peter. He was friends with Mary, Jesus's mom. In fact, there are details in Luke's Gospel that you don't get in any of the other Gospels. And it's very likely because Jesus—I mean, Luke was friends with Mary and got a lot of the details about Jesus' younger life and his birth and all that sort of stuff. It's so really interesting stuff. So, so Luke, through the eyewitness accounts, investigated all of this and then included this language in his introduction. So today, we're going to jump ahead. So we were in Luke 1. We're going to jump ahead to Luke 3 where we're introduced to Jesus's pregame show. And his pregame show was the man they called John the Baptizer, or, as we know him, John the Baptist. So we're going to go to Luke chapter 3, verse 1. If you have a Bible, please go ahead and open it up. The verses I'll put on the screen come from the New International Version of the Bible, unless indicated otherwise, which you'll see toward the end. Luke 3, 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... When Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Echuria, and Triconitis, and Lysanius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of, an- of Annas and Caiaphas. That's an awful lot of detail, isn't it? Like if you're making stuff up, you'd be pretty pretty wild to be making up names like that and all. But it's all been it's all been uh, confirmed through historical records and so on. And before we move on, just pay attention. Just think about that specificity as we're going through Luke's gospel. It's almost like Luke is telling anybody who would be skeptical hearing his words, go ahead and Google it. Go look at it for yourself. I mean, that's what we do now, right? That's, that's when we speak now and we tell people things. We go, oh, just in case you're not believing, go ahead and Google it. Google it for yourself. And, of course, everybody pulls out their phones and Googles things like that, and that's really cool. So, anyway, Luke continues. He's basically referred to a specific time period. So, in that specific time period, here's what he says. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. John, the son of Zechariah, is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is an historical character that showed up here in this gospel and in some of the other gospels, because he had a specific role to play when it came to the life of Jesus. Now, it's notable that John the Baptist also shows up quite prominently in what we call an extra biblical work or an outside of the Bible work that was written by the Jewish historian known as Flavius Josephus. So, Basically, we refer back a lot to Flavius Josephus because he was not a Christian, he was not a Jesus fan per se, but he writes a lot of stuff that we read about in the Bible, and he confirms a lot of it and had no reason to confirm it. So that's why we do that. So I wanted you to know that. So when Luke introduces us to John the Baptist, you can be confident that Luke is giving you the truth, that Luke wasn't making anything up. So... John the Baptist comes along, and he caused a huge ripple in his culture. And he caused such a huge ripple that nobody could ignore it. So now let's go back to Luke. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he, that's John, went into all the country around the Jordan, Jordan River, and preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So you need to know this first. John's activities were mildly scandalous at the time. We read that and we go, okay, he's baptizing, so what? You know, having street churches baptizing next week, big deal. But this was a scandal because the Jews at the time, they already had a system in place that addressed the way you have your sins forgiven. Okay, they already had in place a temple system. We've talked about that a lot. And in the temple system, a person would bring an animal to the temple for sacrifice, and then the priest would take the animal, and then the priest would offer up whatever specific prayer was needed for that sacrifice, and then they would kill the animal. They would sacrifice the animal in order to cover over that person's sin. And then John comes along, and basically what John's saying is, hey, that temple system that you're so used to, it's corrupt. temple system is corrupt. You don't need to go to the temple anymore. John said, come to me instead. Come to me Repent of your sin, and then I'll baptize you, and then you can go and live unburdened from that sin. Well, that's a scandal. You're telling all these people who, for a thousand plus years, they go to the temple, and, or they go to the, the high priest, and they get their sins covered over, and John's saying, no more, those people are all corrupt, now I want you to come to me. And he did this in order to get the people ready for the coming of the promised Messiah. He did this in order to warm up the crowd For Jesus. He was Jesus's opening act, let's say. So quoting from the Hebrew prophet Isaiah, and if you're interested in finding it, it's in Isaiah chapter 40, John let them know that someone, another person, someone new was coming. So he said, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. Now, we read in Matthew's Gospel about this event, the fact that there was a huge crowd of people that went to hear John the Baptist speak. So naturally, people heard about this. You know, things happen in our world today, but because we know so much and we're so overwhelmed by information, we don't know everything that's going on in the world. But then, when something big was happening, everybody knew about it. So naturally, word of John the Baptist's presence, baptizing up there in the Jordan, got back to the temple in Jerusalem. So just imagine the gossip that must have been going on at the temple. Because listen, people are just like they are now. So with something big's going on, they're going to talk about it. They're going to gossip about it. They must have been like, there's this crazy guy out in the wilderness. We know he's kind of a crazy guy because if you remember the scripture, he's wearing a camel's hair and eating bugs and stuff. And people notice weird things like that. And so they're going like, there's this crazy guy out there in the wilderness. And he's telling people they don't need the temple anymore. That nut is telling people that he can forgive sin. Well, if you're in charge of the forgiving of sin at the temple, you're going to be a little bit upset by this. and You might take matters into your own hands. And that's what happened. The religious leaders were thus motivated to go out and check this out. They need to see what was going on. So they headed out. Now, it took them about a day to get out there. So it's, it's interesting. Again, we always forget Our time frames are compressed because we have cars and stuff like that. And we go, oh, you know, go to Fort Lauderdale. Okay, done. You know, think about it. If we wanted all to go to Fort Lauderdale this afternoon and we didn't have cars, it would take us quite a while to get there, right? A 20-mile walk, right? But anyway, they went out. They traveled a day or so. And they arrived at the place where John was baptizing. And when they saw John, and John saw them, John greeted them. He greeted them. And here's how he greeted them. You brood of vipers. That's what he says. Like, hi, you brood of vipers. That's what he does. That's not very nice, right? Like these are the most venerated people, the most honored and respected people in all of Judea. And he's going, hey, you pit of venomous snakes. And then John began to taunt them. And he taunts them in kind of a confusing way. So when you read it, you don't really realize it's a taunt. But I'm going to take us through it, and we'll hopefully figure out what he meant there. So, so here's what he says. We're going to keep going in Luke 3.7. He says this, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? So John's telling the crowd, all right, religious leaders, who told you people that you all need to avoid God's wrath, and the only way you can avoid God's wrath was by coming out here to me and being baptized? And then he kind of intimates by saying that, you know, just going through the motions of this baptism is not going to do it for you, you know. It's not going to make you right with God. If you want to be ready for what God's about to do in your midst, it's going, to be, it's going to be requiring of you more than a ritual. You're going to have to, we go to verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. He said to them, it's not just a ritual. You're going to have to start putting some motion in your devotion. You're going to have to start doing less talking and more walking, more walking out your faith. And so he continues. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, don't think that you're going to be grandfathered into God's good graces just because you're a legacy, just because you descended from Abraham, just because of who you're related to. Don't think that God needs you just because of who your ancestor was. You following along with this? These are taunts. They came out thinking, you can't say this to us. We are Abraham's descendants. We are so important to God. He's like, no, 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 no. Because here's what he says. For I tell you, you're not all that important. God can raise up children for Abraham out of all these stones. In other words, John's saying, God isn't all that impressed with who you're related to, with who your ancestor was. God, if he wants to, can turn rocks into the children of Abraham. So he's saying, don't, don't pull rank on me by saying you're Abraham's children. God could make a rock Abraham's child if he wants to. You've got to imagine, the religious leaders are like, ouch, that wasn't nice. We didn't say anything yet. John said some pretty extreme stuff to these religious leaders. And it's here we have to ask ourselves, what if we showed up there? What what would John say to us? What would he say to you and me? Maybe he'd say something like this. And don't say to yourselves, but I'm a Christian. I prayed the sinner's prayer. I asked Jesus to be my Savior. I asked Jesus into my heart. I mean, I'm good to go, right? To that, John might say, I'll tell you what, John can make Christians out of stones if he wants to. God can can raise up Christians from anything if he wants to. We're we're no different from the religious leaders, so we have to be really careful when we sit in judgment over them. Because John's words were meant to convict the religious leaders, John's words are meant to convict us as well. John was trying to shake the nominally religious, the perfunctorily religious people, out of their self-made, self-satisfying religion out of their right-thinking faith without action. He was trying to shake them out of that and shake them into a self-sacrificial, selfless life that is more reflective of the love for God that Jesus would come to display for them. John knew what was coming. John knew that these nominally religious, these perfunctorily religious people would eventually be the ones shouting, crucify him crucify him when Jesus was persecuted and prosecuted, because they thought that they were all that. They actually missed it. They missed the entire thing. They missed the entire fact that God, who became a man, came to dwell among them. So John was reminding them, and he was reminding us, what our lives are supposed to be advertising. Our lives are supposed to be advertising fruit and not just belief. Fruit in keeping with repentance. John the Baptist was exhorting his audience and us to produce fruit in keeping with what we say we believe and in keeping with who we claim to believe in. All right, so now it's a good time to jump back and clean a couple things up in case your mind is going there and you're wondering. John was not completely discounting being related to Abraham. And John was not completely discounting our having faith in Jesus. Of course he wasn't. He was just saying, that's not it. That's not the finish line. That's not all you need to do. That's just the beginning. That's the starting line. So perhaps after the resurrection, he would have put it this way. He would say, that's awesome that you put your faith in Jesus and that you've confessed your sin. And then you've turned from the person you were and turned to Jesus who rose from the dead to pay for your sins. And you've made him the Lord and leader of your life. He's become your savior. That's awesome. But that's just the beginning of your new life in Christ. Because your new life in Christ is a life that will be characterized and motivated by your love for God and for other people. He would say the days of internalized, my religion is my own and myself, and I keep it private, that internalized, vertical-only religion, my religion is only between me and God, I don't have to worry about anybody else. He's saying those days are over with. And John's audience got the message. And we know they got the message because we can see the question they ask next, and it's a question that all of us should ask. In fact, at the end of today's message, at the end of our time together, I'm going to challenge you to begin asking this question personally, to ask this question of yourself. It's a question that if we were to ask it corporately, if we were to ask it in our families, if we were to ask it as teachers, if we were to ask it as community leaders, if we were to all together begin to ask this question and act upon it, it would change things for us. You see, our Christian faith begins to die It begins to wither and die when it becomes too internalized. Which is really interesting because you see there's a movement right now of people telling us, listen, you believe whatever you want, just keep it to yourself. I don't want to see it in your work. I don't want to hear you talk about it. Just, if you keep it to yourself, we'll be fine. That's what we're hearing now, and our faith dies as we do that. It loses its power when we, and it's often unintentional, but when we become all about what's in it for me, my religion is just about what's in it for me, and when we become like that, it's bad. But after hearing John's words, the people in the crowd are like, all right, interesting. So what should we do then? What should we do? If it's not just about all the internal stuff, it's not just about the right thinking, what should we do then? Not what should we believe, what should we do? If God's about to do something new, we don't want to miss it. How can we best be ready for it? How can we best prepare ourselves for what God's about to do? Now, of course, they were expecting a religious answer. That's how religious people thought. That's how religious people still think. That's how religious people are. If God's going to do something, then we have to do something religious, right? And John's answer surprised them. So here they are. They go, okay, what do we have to do? What religious thing are you going to give us? What religious ritual are we going to have to follow? And John's answer surprised them, and it it should surprise us too. What should we do then? Here's how John answers. Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. That's it. That's it. And they're thinking, you came at the entire religious establishment... You baptized hundreds, if not thousands of people in this new way. And now all you're saying is that we just need to share? Really? That's the answer? That's not very religious. Anybody can do that. And John was like, yeah, right, exactly. Anybody can do that. And then John goes a little deeper. And then John's essentially saying, since we're talking about sharing, anyone who has food, you share too. You should do the same. Because, you know, food is sometimes scarce, and certainly was back then. And food is sometimes expensive, and certainly is now, and was then as well. And food didn't keep. Food was tough to transport. Sometimes people needed food. So we go, okay, John, we need to share. We, need, we just need to share. That's it. And he goes, yeah. If you see a, me- a, a need that you can meet, meet it. See, John knew was, what John knew that they didn't know yet was that God was about to do just that. For the people and the world. There was a need, and God was about to share his son. Well, John didn't stop there. Because not only were the religious people and the common people there, but there were also people there who typically wouldn't come anywhere near a preacher, like tax collectors. Remember the tax collectors? If you're watching The Chosen, we've talked about that a bit. The way they portray the tax collectors, particularly Matthew, is just fantastic. It's really, really cool to watch how they portray Matthew and just how, how distant everybody tried to stay from Matthew because he was a tax collector. They were possibly the most hated people in the entire Jewish community. Tax collectors were so hated that they had their own category of sin. It was always sinners and tax collectors. Like They're so bad they didn't get to be included in the sinner category. They had to have their own category of sin. You're like a sinner or a tax collector. You're even worse than a sinner. Because they were thieves who leveraged the power of Rome to steal from their own people. And they showed up too. They showed up at the Jordan to be baptized by John also. And they asked, so here's what the tax collectors asked. This is really cool. Teacher, what should we do? How about us tax collectors? Is there anything we can do? What should we do? And to John, John said, oh, that's easy. Here's what he said. Did you ever notice this is in there? He said this, don't collect any more than you're required to. That's what you tax collectors should should do. Don't collect too much tax. Basically, he's telling them, stop stealing. That's what he's saying. I know you took the job so that you could steal. But I'm telling you, stop stealing. Rise above that. Be better than that. Flip the script. Make a difference. Be a different kind of tax collector. And then it got even more remarkable. Because not only were the Jews interested in this oddball prophet from the wilderness, But there were Roman soldiers that were there, too. And these weren't the Roman regulars, as they were called. These soldiers weren't ethnic Romans. They weren't Roman citizens. They'd probably never even been to Rome. These soldiers were what are referred to as auxiliary soldiers or auxiliary troops, they were soldiers who had been hired from the surrounding regions of the Jordan, the regions that hated the Judeans and hated the Galileans. And Rome employed these people and brought them in to enforce Roman law. So the Jewish people hated them because they were enforcing Roman law and because they were Gentile foreigners who they hated anyway. But they were there also listening to John. And they asked John, here's what they asked in verse 14, what should we do? And John replied, how about this? You guys don't exhort money, extort money and don't accuse people falsely. That's what you guys are doing. Cut it out. Be content with your pay. Don't force people to pay you for protection when Rome's already paying you to protect us. John says, just cut that out, you Roman auxiliaries stop taking unfair advantage of people. And John was telling them that because he knew, he knew on the horizon what God was about to do. God was about to do something where he not only doesn't take unfair advantage of people, but God was about to sacrifice himself for the benefit of people. John told these auxiliaries, these Roman soldiers, quit leveraging your power to illegally increase your pay. John told them to do what is just, not what they could justify. Because John knew that one was coming who was going to choose not to exact justice. Do you realize what that means? God chose not to punish us with the punishment we deserve. That is amazing. What an act of grace. And that's what God did for us. God showed his grace. He granted us mercy. God did not allow himself to take us out for what we deserve. He could have justified it, but he didn't. And John said to these auxiliaries, don't use your power to abuse the powerless. Use your power to protect the powerless. See, this is completely different than what they were thinking. This is upside down. This is backwards, and this is unprecedented. Now, imagine a world like that. Imagine a world where people treated other, each other with dignity and where people used their power only to help the powerless, about which Jesus would one day say in Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John told them, live your life like that. And the crowd had never heard anything like that. They were absolutely blown away by John's teaching. And they were so blown away by John's teaching that they were thinking, you know what? This guy's the Messiah. Like they were positive that John was the Messiah. So we go back to Luke 3. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John the Baptist could possibly be the Messiah. John knew what they were thinking, knew what they were wondering. He quickly shut them down. Here's what he said in verse 17 He says, uh uh-uh, uh, you're wrong. I baptize with water. The one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am, un- I am not worthy to untie. He's coming and he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's saying to them, essentially, folks, if you think my words are powerful, wait. Just wait till you see who's coming. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes, which means I'm not even worthy to be his slave, much less his follower much less his disciples. So people, get ready, because he's coming. So how do we get ready? Go do something. Do something noticeable. Do something notable. Do something noteworthy. Go make a difference in somebody's life. Which brings us back to the original question. If you're a Jesus follower, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, if you've accepted him as your Lord, which means your leader, the leader of your life, and the Savior of your soul, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then your life is supposed to be a commercial for Jesus. Jesus said in John 13, 35, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. He said in Matthew 5, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your good deeds shine out for all to see. Let them see your good deeds so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. See, we don't get to decide if we're going to be a commercial for Jesus. The only thing we get to decide is what we're advertising for Jesus. If your life is a commercial, What are you advertising? If your faith is a commercial, what version of faith are you advertising? Will it be the internal, vertical, what's in it for me version of Christianity? The version that feels comforting and comfortable to us but requires very little of us? Because we're going to go to heaven when we die. And we're going to have a God to seek out when we need something, that gumball machine God we put in a coin and we get what we want. Are we going to advertise that version of faith in Jesus? Now I want you to hear me on this. That version of faith in Jesus, that version of Christianity is not bad and it's not unimportant. It's actually both very good and both very important. It's just not all there is. It's incomplete. It's not everything. This version of Christianity is just the part that's all about us and requires very little of us. And what I'm asking is, are you not only advertising that version, but also advertising the version of faith in Jesus that we just heard John the Baptist talking about? Is your life, are our lives, advertising the John the Baptist version? The Jesus version of faith in God that we're going to be talking about next week. Are we advertising that? The one another version. The do for others version. The version of Christianity that does things. that, That has motion in its devotion. So I want to challenge you to begin asking the question that they asked John. It's the right question. And it prepared them for what was coming. And it prepared them for who was coming. And it ensured that their eyes were wide open so they did, they did not miss the king when he showed up on the scene. What should we do? Now, have been around the church long enough to, to know that this whole doing thing can be a bit uncomfortable. Some denominations stress doing more than others. It's a bit of a mystery among us church people as to the balance and sadly, though, too many of us prioritize deep teaching over doing, because somehow we've been led to believe that's, that, that we, what we know takes precedence over what we do. Understand this. What we know is important for our salvation. But when it comes to living a life for Jesus and in Jesus, there is nothing deeper than doing But please don't make the mistake of learning stuff. Don't substitute that for doing stuff. Don't make the mistake of substituting learning stuff for doing for others. Doing is very deep. And do you know why? Because when you follow Jesus, when you begin to ask the question, Heavenly Father, what do you want me to do? He's going to draw you out into a place where you're not comfortable into a place where you can't touch the bottom. That, brothers and sisters, is the definition of deep. You're just treading water out there. You can't get your feet on the ground. That's a place where you're going to have to exert energy. That's a place where you're going to have to be a little bit afraid because you're really in over your head. But that's the place where your heavenly Father is going to invite you because that's the place where he sent his Son And that's how he changed the world. So when you begin to pray, God, what do you want me to do? Be ready, because he's going to tell you. And he's going to draw you out into some uncomfortable places. But it's in those uncomfortable, taxing, beyond your ability places. It's in those places where you can't touch bottom that God comes alive. It's in those places where you're you're treading water and you're asking God to come to your rescue that you're going to realize just how important your faith really is. And and I get it. I'm right there with you. Those places are terrifying. They are scary. They're going to bring us into situations where we'll intersect with people who have problems we can't even solve. We can't even hope to solve. They're going to bring us into contact with people where we can't really help them, but all we can do is help cushion their fall. But it's in those situations that we will see God's work in their lives, and we'll see God's work in our lives as well. It's in those places where we'll see how our life syncs up with God's work, God's work in our culture, God's work in our world. And when we see that and we're in that place, our strength, our our faith will be strengthened and revitalized. Doing is messy. And doing is costly, but doing is life-changing. And doing is joy-infusing. Doing is all that. Now, many of you already know this. Many of you serve serve God. You serve around the community. You serve here at church, and you do so with joy. And even when you're working with somebody who's going through a really tough situation and you can't really tackle the issue yourself, you still feel God's pleasure as you work with them and God's pleasure changes you, and you wouldn't trade that difficult time for all the money in the world. And I want everybody here to have that experience. I want everyone here to feel that. And more importantly, God wants everyone here to feel that. Whenever God calls you out to do something, even though it's going to cost you, it's going to infuse joy into your life. And while you're doing it, you're going to feel like you're walking in tandem with God and you're truly doing his work in the world. Those are moments, I promise you, that you'll never want back. Because those are moments that are best invested. Those are the moments in your life that are the best invested moments you will ever experience. But if you continue to be a hearer only, and a consumer only, you will find yourself in a danger zone. Because whether you recognize it or not, in that space, your faith is dying. Your faith is wilting, and you'll eventually become so consumed by yourself and for yourself that you lose your faith. What's in it for me, Christianity, will ultimately rob you of your faith. Jesus told us, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of my Father, that's why what should we do is the perfect question. John the Baptist said to the people in the crowd that they should do in the world what God was about to do for the world. Jesus knew that if the people listening, I'm sorry, John knew that if the people listening to him would do compassion and do generosity and do others first and do for another they would recognize God's work in the world. And they would recognize the selfless Lamb of God that was about to step into the pages of history. So as we wrap up today, let's do this. Will you guys all agree with me that every day this week you'll pray, Heavenly Father, what should I do? Would you do that? In fact, let's practice it out loud together. Ready? Here we go. Heavenly Father, what should I do? Heavenly Father, what do you want me to do? Now let's say we. Heavenly Father, what should we do? Very nice. That's good. I like that. We should do more of that. I want you to remember, believers did not change the world. Followers changed the world. Doers changed the world. The men and women whose lives advertise the kingdom of God, the men and women whose lives advertise Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, changed the world. So will you ask it, Heavenly Father, what should I do? Because if you ask that, your eyes and your heart will be open to what God has next for you and what God has next for our world. Amen? We will pick up right there next time in part three of Investigating Jesus. How we know and why we follow. I'm going to pray, but I ask you to stick around for a second after I pray, okay? But before we go, you get three questions. Here's three questions I want you to consider this week. Wrestle with these questions. When you think about your faith, have you become more of a consumer than an advertiser? And if so, why did that happen? And what needs to change? All right, let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, All of us at some level have probably experienced joy, the joy of selfless serving, the joy of simple serving, the joy of giving sacrificially. And God, I pray that that would become more and more the lifestyle of our people at Hammock Street Church. And I pray that you would raise up a group of Jesus followers. I pray that you would raise up a group of Jesus followers that are so enthusiastic that people cannot help but stop and stare at us. And people want to join us as we allow our good works to glorify you, our Father in heaven. So, Father, give us wisdom to know what to do with what we just heard. Give us the courage to step out into the deep. And give us the courage to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. One more thing before you go. Audra has asked that I asked the church to pray for her this week. This week, um, she is having surgery to treat her mesothelioma. The surgery is scheduled to go all day on Thursday. It's an eight to 10 hour surgery. So I'm going to lead us in prayer. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes and also promise me that you'll continue to pray for her throughout the week. She's traveling on Tuesday and surgery is Thursday. But let me pray. Heavenly Father, we all lift up Audra and ask that you bless her with a peaceful spirit as she heads into this terrifying situation. God, we ask that you calm her fears, that you give her faith in her doctors and her healthcare providers. God, we ask that you give her a successful surgery and an easy recovery. God, we ask for a good outcome and a quick return home. God, we pray for the healthcare providers and doctors that they would be well rested that morning and up to task. We ask that they would be able to remove the cancer and return her to health. We ask that you protect her husband and her small children. We ask that you calm their fears. We ask that you strengthen their faith. God, we ask that as they travel for the surgeries. We ask that you grant your mercy on all of the travel and the logistics necessary to carry out all of these procedures. God, we know that you are a God who heals and a God of miracles, and we ask for that now. We love you, God. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.